Hi, Hannah. So today we're going to be talking about when you're working on a project and that project is maybe like a little bit grounded in some type of reality, how to do on the ground research or how we're approaching on the ground research. Yeah, probably best to just confine it to our example. I know. I realize that actually this is like probably not like there's no advice to be given here. We're just but we're going to be talking about our first foray into on the ground research because we're working on a project where the setting is a recreation sort of historical village. Right. And we happen to have some real world examples of those in our region. Yeah. So in the case of our project, the setting is far future, and the historical recreation is Earth in the year 1993. Right. So we wanted to find a historical recreation village that was going to be leaving, you know, a few hundred year type gap. Which Sturbridge Village, wait, I should introduce it. Pop <laughs> uh, out in- with introduce it. it, which was Sturbridge Village. That's where we decided to go. So we decided to go to Sturbridge Village, a local recreation museum that's recreating roughly like the 1820s in New England. So you hadn't been to Sturbridge Village before, right? Oh, no. I haven't been to any, anything of this sort since I was forced to at some point in grade school. Right. And we both talked, going into it, we both talked about our respective experiences of like going on historical educational field trips. Those are not fond memories for me. It's like the most boring field trip imaginable to young Evan. Yeah, for me too. And I feel like aside from maybe Six Flags or like, you know, really fun, like field trips to a chocolate factory. I feel like in general, my experience as a kid in school was that school was such a tiny prison that like any time to leave it, you just sort of went feral uh, with freedom and like a little feral socially because you were like, we're in a new place. We're outside. Oh, my gosh, things are different. Like I was not learning. Yeah, if I learned anything, those lessons are are buried deep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly, I just remember them disrupting the normal school day and, you know, celebrating that. Yeah. So I'm curious, because we both had this experience telling some people like, oh, we're going to go to Sturbridge Village to do research for the project that we're working on. And most people said to me, ooh, that's boring. Yeah. And I'm curious how many people just stopped going to historical reenactment villages as part of like school field trip. Like that was their last experience of it or like a family trip where they were forced to. It was, I don't know, it was weird being in this position where we were like, no, we're choosing to go. Right. <laughs> Nobody's forcing our it's hand. for our own benefit. Um, but we did manage to rope in a couple of friends. We did. Yeah, so we went with two friends and what was the what I what were some of our like goals going in? So, some of the big So, I'd say to begin with, we were going in with a very open mind about what we would learn there. Uh almost to a liberating extent, almost to the extent that I would want to take this mindset with me on regular outings, not just research ones. Because what we kept saying is, no matter how bad, boring, unpleasant, like surprisingly shut down or whatever anything is, that's all excellent research. That's perfect for the kind of setting we're trying to write. And it's not that we were expecting that. 
we were going into it with this understanding that if it was awkward or a total flop or we didn't have fun, it would all just still be research for what it looks like for something to be a total flop and not fun and that that can be part of our setting and story too. So that's my main memory of like our preparations was just eyes wide open, good or bad, interesting or dull. It's all good fodder to draw upon. Once we arrived, we immediately started seeing seeing things that popped right out to us. So in a minute, we'll say our observations and jump into what the whole experience was like. First, without like giving a history lesson, we can just give like a little bit of background about what we learned about Sturbridge Village on our drive there. Because we we hadn't looked up anything going in about just like what what brought this place to be. Right. So it was on the drive there that we were like, what's the deal with this place? Right? And it ended up having a pretty fun history <laughs> on its own website describing its eccentric millionaire founder. Yeah, which am I correct that while we were driving and we said something like, where did this place originate anyway? You or somebody in the car was like, likely some eccentric millionaire. I I think I we think did call you it. said that. And I don't want to give myself credit because it's it gauche. You. But, uh... <laughs> so uh, I will just read just a brief, a, a little bit straight from the website because it's just so, it, it is exactly what you would expect. Um Industrialist Albert B. Wells of Southbridge, Massachusetts, became interested in the beauty of hand-wrought utilitarian objects in the early 1900s on annual tours of Europe with his father-in-law, the noted Chicago architect Daniel Hudson Burnham. Wells had great respect and admiration for Burnham, who famously advised, Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble, logical diagram once recorded will never die, but long after we are gone, be a living thing. That's some founder energy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of which, so then the story was that this, you know, guy, this young guy, A.B. Wells, had gone on a trip with some of his friends, like some of his rich friends in the mid-1920s, and his friends were like, let's go antiquing, let's go to junk shops. And he was like, junk shops, that's below our status. I, there is a part of me that highly doubts that this happened. There's something that was written into the narrative that just made it sound like they had to add a bit of drama to his origin story as a collector. I, I'm I'm on the side of of them reading his actual maybe speeches or memoirs about it, and and he might have played up well, that's his fair. own sense of. I couldn't imagine <laughs> what they saw in those You're right. old junk shops. Yeah, it, uh, who knows? Yeah, if, if there is a lie here, that that was probably coming from him. So, you know, they went to some junk shops, and from there, he became obsessed with what were the, there was a specific word. He called them primitives. Oh, oddities and primitives. Yes, which was what he called his antiques. so his collection started ballooning to the extent that he eventually had to move himself and his wife out of his home into a new one the old one had become so stuffed with antique shop we're not explicit we're this stuff stuff yeah uh (laughs) and it said that ab wells later wrote a friend writing, when the collecting bug bit me, it bit me hard. So his collecting bug bit him hard, and as many eccentric millionaires, he decided to extend his vast collection into, uh, like, sort of grouping objects to make kind of a recreation historical experience. The rest was, some of it was a little bit blurry about how then the transition to Sturbridge Village happened. 
the way it's written puts forward the idea that this was sort of the creation of even the idea of a recreation museum. Uh, I have not looked into that. that's <laughs> that, I, I wonder how many like recreation villages like to imagine themselves as the pioneer of the art form. But it, who knows? Maybe Sturbridge Village is. Yeah. Because it was originally like, oh, we should just open our own antique shop to get rid of this stuff. But it won't be any shop. We'll... We'll lay it out as though a traveler were visiting a genuine primitive <laughs> village. So over the years, it became a, it rolled into a more traditional museum recreation village, charging an entrance fee, uh, getting school field trips in, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So you want to move on to our experiences of our day at Sturbridge Village? The first thing that came to mind was that it ended up being quite cold and we were all underdressed. It was cold. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember when we went, if it was just if it was just last month in June, but it was like an exceptionally cold day and it rained the whole day and uh, we were all very, really chilly. I guess that did add a certain coziness to going into the homes that had, you know, open flame fires. Yeah. <laughs> I think the very first thing that struck us going in is just that, as you can imagine, of course, there's a mix of modern and old presentations and affectations. Yes. Well, and I especially want to call this one out because I remember strongly from our earlier convert from our earliest conversations and even continuing up to our visit to Sturbridge Village when we talked about the book uh, that we're working on, I was saying like there's gonna be a mix of future tech because you can't keep future tech out of like you just can't keep future tech out of 1993 in a world where future tech exists. Like right. there's gonna be these. I don't know, are anachronisms, is that? Yeah, like, uh, that's the perfect word. Yeah, and you were arguing for a pretty, like, uh, pure experience. Uh-huh. And I felt happy and right <laughs> and vindicated <laughs> when we got to Sturbridge Village. And, like, the first thing that you see is, you know, somebody wearing a bonnet, walking by, like, texting on their break, or, you know, somebody over a cook fire wearing their Warby Parker glasses. And I was like, oh, you just can't keep it out. I mean, it, I, I don't know that it was even an argument it per se. An, I, but, my memory. <laughs> but, but if it was an argument, I don't think you've won it. Oh. Because this is just one museum and they have a pretty chill policy about creating a consistent vision of the past. Okay, that's They true. seem pretty relaxed about it. But I feel like once you get into like a really, really rigid vision, you're getting into like cult territory and... Yeah. We're in like capitalism territory and capitalism territory like favors the mix that uh, appeals to both worlds without inconveniencing anybody. I, in my opinion, it gives people enough of an illusion that they're having like a fantasy experience or a historical experience without removing too many of the comforts that they're used to. I think you're right. I think Sturbridge Village uh, exemplifies that. Right? And I think you're like... right that that's going to be the sort of preferred comfort zone of level of sort of immersion for those who are looking for it while keeping the creature comforts and and just conveniences of right. more modern technology. Like you want to see an old-timey bathroom without using an old-timey bathroom. <laughs> right. And, you know, the opening building, the first place we went into, which is where you buy your tickets... We were approached. At this point, we did not know how in character the residents, the people operating this museum would be. Yeah, like we weren't sure if we were supposed to expect sort of Renaissance Fair level of right. like, welcome, you traveler. And then that's kind of what happened. Like the first, we got there and a man dressed to the nines in 19th century formal wear came forward and welcomed us. To the village and directed us over to the plexiglass 
counter where a completely uncostumed woman was happy to sell us some tickets. Yeah. So yeah, you know, they're not, they're, they like gesturing at it. Uh, the overall attitude of the people working there was to just have a smidge of a playful, a playful smidge of acting the part. Yeah, with, and I really liked one thing that we noticed was also that different people went in and out of character. I mean, it, it reminded me a lot of playing a role playing became. It reminded me a lot of playing a role-playing game because some people, like there was one guy who sort of exclusively said, we, we, uh, and he was the guy who was the, um, what was the name for a person who works with baskets? I can't remember what his, anyway, oh, yeah. he, he was a basket maker. He's and like he, a, the barrel maker. Oh, yes, yes. He made barrels and, and he kept saying, we, like this is the way that we did things. Right. Like when... When we go to make a a barrel, and and through it all, there wasn't a sense of like he. It didn't feel like he was slipping. No, it, no. It felt like he was just casually enjoying the the presence. Yeah. Uh, and then you know there was like a very another place that we went was a little blacksmith's shop, and he was like a really charismatic young guy who was kind of more delivering like a a history lesson but in a really you know like and do you know the way that they would have done things back then right yeah it was a real mix the costuming was serious yes they clearly took a lot of pride in getting period appropriate clothing made in a period appropriate ways to everyone and it seemed like because these were like custom tailored to people, like they were just very proud of their outfits. There was a lot of just, uh, I, I saw a lot of outfit pride. I don't know if you were seeing that. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the the outfits were great. Some people were f thoroughly out of character and presenting themselves as the historians that they actually were, which was one of the big things that struck me is enthusiastic historians who are proud of their capacity to know and date and explain the artifacts and architecture techniques of the place. We, we were visiting a newly opened piggery, and it was, it was, and this was a pretty special day. Like, this was the grand opening. It was opening. the grand opening of the we piggery. We were given a small pig yeah, squeezy toy. Yeah, I still have toy. a squeezy pig in my car. It's so cute. <laughs> The squeezy toy was not made with authentic 19th no, century craftsmanship. <laughs> no, I think that came from AliExpress. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking to the people introducing the piggery building, which I, if it's not clear, it's a, it's like a shed that pigs live in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we would ask a question like, oh, when was this originally built? And the historian was just, just went off on like the adventure of figuring out the exact year that the original piggery was built. Yeah. By examining auction records from preceding and following years and seeing the evidence of some piggery supplies being added to the to the listing. I mean I can I could just perfectly clearly picture this this gentleman bending over old auction house records by candlelight yeah. <laughs> and and pinpointing the first mention of piggery supplies and dating it and cross-referencing it and yeah yeah that i mean that was the first thing that we saw and that gave me a lot of ideas for you know in the way that we present our setting showing different people's relationship to history because you have like the blacksmith, who is a guy who's clearly a skilled blacksmith, who's also kind of using this awesome, like, craft, this trade for, you know, also getting into the historical immersion and right. learning the history. And then you have Piggery Guy, who seems to just be like a local volunteer history buff, who's like, 
lives in the area and is just obsessed with accurately researching and presenting the history of Sturbridge. And this all fits into a larger picture of volunteer labor for a for-profit institution or a for-profit nonprofit. Yeah, Yeah, everybody from everybody seemed to be a volunteer. Most Um, people seem to be, but I think or or at least some were paid. Our our horse carriage driver seemed to have a wage attached to his work. Yeah, but that I mean, this is a common thing all over the place, but it's interesting in this context to see how the enthusiasm of enthusiasts uh, gets drawn upon as free or cheap labor for the institution, which, you know, what we're writing about is meant to be a capitalist hellhole. So we were very attuned to the hints of that. And I don't mean to say that, you know, Sturbridge Village is uh, abhorrent. Yeah. No, we were just, I mean, we were going in looking. I mean, when if we go to Salem or if we go elsewhere, like I think we're just going to be sort of comparing the way that different, I don't know, ways of trying to draw people into history while also making a profit will be uh, presenting themselves. Right. It helped me because I think I was mentally leaning towards a cast of people who were who were tired out of the setting and not genuinely interested in the past. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, now I wonder thinking about all of the people walking around and like some young people walking around. I'm really curious who was the volunteer, like what the ratio is of volunteered to like paid staff. So right. uh I think it's worth doing a little bit more research and seeing if we can actually like find that out. I think there's just three people there making six figures. <laughs> yeah, we've researched them. Should we get back to that? We'll come back to All that. All right. I I have a segue. So one thing that we were really interested in going into Sturbridge Village was seeing if they had a printed code of conduct. This is coming on the heels of us watching Jenny Nicholson's YouTube documentary about the uh, role-playing LARPing amusement park Evermore, which had some evidently very real conduct issues. <laughs> yeah, so Evermore was a great example of these people who are expected to not break character, sometimes being cornered by guests, not necessarily maliciously, just guests demanding a lot of their time or making comments that are a little bit questionable. And it's all sort of the employee is supposed to remain in character, but is also now like captive to an an uncomfortable experience that they can't escape. Right. And unlike at a role-playing game table, these are people who are bound by contract or at least a code of conduct. Yeah. Uh, so we we were curious what Sturbridge Village, like if they were going to have anything printed, because it's also something that we're thinking a lot about in our book, because in our setting, you have people who live on a planet, they live in the place where they work. And right. there's like just a lot of really blurry boundaries around when you're on the clock versus not. And almost sort of if you are ever allowed to be off the clock in terms of just like keeping up the illusion of the setting right. um, and and being kind to guests or being helpful to guests. And I, I mean, I think this is an experience that just people have in customer service roles also where like you go on your break and somebody's like, excuse me, can you help me with something? And if you're like, I'm on my break, uh, sometimes you get in trouble for that, depending on your job. They're like, right. you were rude to a customer. Uh, so yeah, we we did find one for Sturbridge Village. I'd like to read a couple lines from this code. For me, I don't know if this is the case for you, but these have the the cadence of rules that had to be written in response to guest behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's often the case. <laughs> Old Sturbridge Village is committed to providing a safe environment for staff and visitors. 
physical, verbal, and sexual harassment of staff or visitors will not be tolerated. We expect guests to ask questions for educational purposes. Staff may not answer a personal, uncomfortable, or inappropriate question. Please respect staff when they redirect a conversation back to museum programming. And please respect the personal space of staff. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not bad. I agree. That, that seems good to me. That seems well-written and even essential. And it does feel like that's an, that's an issue that's going to be more and more important the more in-character the staff is and the more that guests are encouraged to be in character themselves yeah because after a certain amount of that play acting is expected you start to get into situations where it's like well it's it's my character <laughs> flirting with their character nothing really right? is happening somebody's just like i have you been married off yet and you're like bye <laughs> no apologies Bye. if this is evoking any bad memories of role-playing game experiences for anyone <laughs> i know i mean it it happens it, it obviously happens in role-playing games and that is why they're safety tools so this reminds me of the residents of the village who do not who are not capable of saying this is just an, a recreation. I'm stepping out of the game. Yeah. Who are those residents? The animals. animals. <laughs> the animals were so cute. It's so hard to think about. I mean, it was it was interesting. It was cool. I learned a lot. I liked seeing like the little sewing shop and I liked seeing the blacksmith. And also I like we got to see a baby lamb the day it was born. Yeah, they stole the show sometimes, and and they made me think a lot about what what it means to be real. <laughs> Something I've always struggled with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, go on. The animals are having a hundred percent genuine experience of this place and their own lives, and even you as the guests. There is no framing of meaning overlaid on top of the reality that they're experiencing. There were barn swallows living in the 19th century barn. They don't think they're in a recreation barn. They don't think this is, they, they don't know it's not really the 19th century. It's just completely real to them in the most real way possible. Like they touch it. They have a nest on it. They raise their family in it. <laughs> Yeah, it was so cool to see barn swallows. I think they're such an awesome bird. I had read at some point that their population was declining because we don't have as many structures now where they can live, <laughs> i.e. barns. I just tried to do a fact check of that, and I'm I'm not sure if that's actually true. It does seem like their population has declined, but I wasn't able to quickly find if that was the reason and separate from just bird populations declining in general because of like global warming and pollution and stuff. Um, but barn swallows are such cool birds and it's so cool to see them in a place abundant with barns. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, they're they're an interesting example because they are being given a habitat also. Right. So to them, I mean, a barn swallow, you know, maybe separate from a, a sparrow that might end up in Sturbridge Village, like a barn swallow is being given a habitat there. Yeah. Does that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting because you're right. Like the animals, as far as we know, they do not know or care that they are in a historic recreation village. There's no such thing as an anachronism yeah. to a bird. <laughs> so there could we... be a laser gun on the floor and Egyptian hieroglyphs on the wall, and the bird would just be like, yeah, that's the present day. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, I mean, we were, we were saying yesterday that, like, you know, a pigeon that roosts in the Disney castle 
for all intents and purposes, thinks fantasy castles are real because they're like, I raised my family here. Yeah. Of course a fantasy I castle is real. I took a crap on one like, this morning. <laughs> like, <laughs> I shat on one like three times last in, in the past hour. <laughs> of course it's real. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, did we do have a pretty strong ecological storyline in the book? There's... There's sort of like that direct line to draw between the animal inhabitants of the recreation earth and the real world animals of Sturbridge Village. I think it also has something to say, though, about the, the human residents who were born and raised in the village. Or not the village, in, in the book, in the, in the recreation okay. world. Yeah. They're going to be aware of anachronisms in many cases, but there are going to be some things they take for granted because that's the world that they were born into, and it just seems like a normal thing. Like maybe streets and sidewalks because of personally driven cars being the way that neighborhoods are organized when there could be future cities on other worlds where there aren't that kind of individually driven cars and the routes of circulation are totally different and the structure of neighborhoods would be unrecognizable. You know, I don't know why now this is making me think. I'm like, what what books and media gave a thought to how animals relate to the setting and which ones sort of give a passing nod or forget them altogether? And I'm thinking about the Maze Runner movies great movies. It's, you know, dystopian YA uh, science fiction about a bunch of teenagers, teenage boys primarily, who are like having to <laughs> run mazes um, <laughs> because of some big corporate conspiracy. Oh my God, I can't even remember why they're running the mazes. The movies are great. Like I really enjoyed all of them. I watched them all with a fr with some friends and I was like so into it the whole time. <laughs> but you know, the mazes are like these giant stone constructs uh, that, that like stretch up hundreds and hundreds of feet into the sky. And you know, inside they have like death robots that change ch chase after you. Right. And I'm like, oh, it's such a good habitat for birds. <laughs> like there's probably so many birds roosting in the maze, roosting, nesting. Did so Maze were Runner... there? Did that did that they make an appearance? I don't think they made an appearance in the movie. I'm curious if in the book they're like, we looked at the birds. That would be nice. So I guess I'll have to read the books. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish. I mean, come on. There's like there's two sides to any <laughs> any horrible dystopia. Like well, yeah. one side is like, think about the birds. How are they doing? They don't care. Or they do, or they're getting messed up by it. I mean, I guess they do care, actually, because I think that it's a post-apocalyptic situation outside of the wall where the world has been, like, destroyed by, you know, pollution or global warming. So I guess the birds do care. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I feel like the animal perspective is really important. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it, it gives It's like another way of getting in touch with reality. Yeah. So I feel like I talked a lot about uh, bird habitations in Maze Runner. Bird, ha bird habitats in Maze Runner. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want to lead us into our final topic, which is just like looking into how places like this make money? Yeah, this took, there was sort of an on the ground level of experiencing this and then later more of a research-oriented one. Yeah. Yeah. Should we start with like our first, at least the observational level of like wh where we see them making money? I mean, the first observation, I think most plainly would be buying that ticket, which we got half off because of a library thing. And I think all of us agreed that that's, that half off made it feel like about the right price. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember how much the tickets, if it was like $30 for an adult day pass without the half off yeah, or something. Yeah, I think it was something along those lines. I can't remember, lines. but it was like one of those things where we were like, oh, that was really fun, but I don't know if we would have had as much fun spending like 
well over a hundred dollars for the four of us. Right. Um, and I'll come back to that. I have a thought about where that pricing. Okay. Um, but that has to do with our research side. Yes. Great. We also experienced uh, ample gift shops, multiple gift shops uh, that had a range, an interesting range of things in them from things that were just sort of old timey, vaguely old timey books about things that are old timey, stuff that's just toys and, and whatever because kids come through. And they were selling the creation of the craftspeople of the village, things made by the blacksmith or by the potter. potter. Because, you know, they're in there day in, day out doing it educationally, but they do make things. So then those things end up in the store. And, you know, for me, that there's a certain feeling that comes with somebody doing this as a volunteer and their presence and their explanations all being given to the guests. And then meanwhile, everything they're producing going to the shop. Yeah. I wonder if they get, I I feel like this is someplace where I'd want to be really careful to not like make an assumption before I know if they're getting any money for I want to give yeah. Sturbridge Village the benefit of the doubt. I at least don't want to misspeak in the negative because we just don't know. Right. We don't know. This is just the, but, yeah. it's just the vibes. impressions. It's vibes. These are the vibes. Uh, and, you know, the like if they were given a commission on everything they made, even that would be wonky, right? Because now it's like, okay, the faster they work the more money they make. Right. Or at the end, they'd have to be like, and remember to check out Yield Gift Shop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So separating them from the financial side has its own benefits of freeing their mind from those cares. So they can just be the, <laughs> the old timey artisans that they were meant to be. Right. Do it for the love of the barrel. <laughs> right. Yeah. The president can just give them that gift. Yeah. Well, he makes his what was it, $260,000 a year? Yeah, that's we'll get, right. We'll get back to that. <laughs> it's coming. Um, <laughs> well, can I say one thing that I was happy to see? Yeah. When we were in the car, I was trying to, I was saying, I bet there's going to be jokey old timey shirts. And everyone was like, what's a jokey old timey shirt? And I was like, you know, a shirt that's like, I got my stick and I'm here to play ball because it's stick ball. I, mean, yeah. I didn't have an example, but I was like That's trying. That's a good shirt. Well, <laughs> we got it. We're going to put that in the turtle bun idea bank. Got... Don't steal. <laughs> uh, and I felt very happy to see that d despite the fact that nobody seemed to really know what I was talking about in the car, they were leaning into that. There were a few of those shirts that were, you know, the, I, I don't remember the specific jokes. I specifically was like, Stir I have bridge. to. I hardly know. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a good, good one. Thanks. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I don't remember, but they were, they did it as they should. There were also several food places, like a full-on cafeteria and lots of little bakeries. Yeah, I'm only making a face. <laughs> they came with their own memories. Unfortunately, I got a little sick from Strawberry macaroni and ye old mac and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all research. It was all part of the experience. Yeah, I felt so bad, though. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a shorter day than expected, guys. You know, I got a little queasy from from what I got, too. Gosh. I would describe what you got as more than a little. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to go into it. But it was a part of, I mean, it, it was all part of the experience and the research. That's yeah. another interesting um, balance of 19th century and modern day experience because they're like well we're gonna make some old-fashioned pot pies and you can have them with a red bull <laughs> right so those are the on the ground extractions uh, that's such a hostile way to put it that's how they make money on the ground yeah just yeah um and afterwards we did a little bit of research into where else they're getting their money 
One of the interesting things that came up was their membership plan, yeah. <laughs> which has more levels than like than like airplane travel seating, like <laughs> like you know copper, gold, diamond plus, sapphire, ruby gem. Yeah, the membership levels. We were reading on the way back. We were like. How much is an annual membership? And, you know, there was sort of the cost for the year. And then it was like, or you can become a gold member, which gives you access to. And some of the things that it gave you access to, we just we could not even figure out what they were. Like we could yeah, not find the additional. It was like, you know, it gives you access to the A tier of something. It, we they, couldn't it started using it a lot of like a, a lot of acronyms. Yeah. And like, as if people are going to understand these like weird exclusive clubs, but uh, it, maybe they do. Right. There and might I'm, be clubs for, for, uh, what's it called when rich people give money? Tax write-offs? No. Like, what do they call it? Philanthropy. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really gave me the sense of like, it was just this reminder that a feeling of sort of exclusivity can be bred anywhere that you can be like, yes, well, I'm a platinum tier donor at Sturbridge Village. And you get the special newsletter. And I think there was even maybe like a private little music performance oh, or that's something. Cute. <laughs> um, I wanted to mention too that like the lowest tier, the like, you know, you are the dirt beneath our feet here of membership. <laughs> It was less than the cost of two day passes. Mm. So it's like, if you're going to go two times in a year, you should sign up to be a member. Yeah. Which that's like not uncommon, right? I think that's that has become pretty common Okay, over time. Yeah. I could be wrong about this, but it does feel like this is a sort of a more modern psychological tool that's being employed to make people subscribe to everything. Everything is a subscription. Yeah. Well, that makes sense for sure. Yeah. And when we talked about the initial price feeling too high, you know, it's not just that memberships might be low. It might be that the day price has been jacked up to make the membership that appealing, which longtime listeners might recognize us recommending for your Kickstarter levels. <laughs> 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 like i think it's the same idea it's just like at a certain point it's just it just makes sense to bump up a level yeah i mean it's not that some of these strategies some of these strategies have been employed for a long long time uh, yeah but uh yeah interesting i wonder if we could go on like the internet archive and look up you know 10 years ago look up ticket prices and oh, see, that's see a if great we idea. see any trends with the popularity. It would be so of... cool if we had done that research before we started that's recording. Okay. That'll be, well then, you know, that can be bonus content. So you can subscribe to our Patreon for the low, low price <laughs> of $2, whatever. Um, <laughs> so uh, should we talk about the, f the final? The money thing? The final money thing. Should we spell a little tea? This is just free. We're doing research. It's interesting. As we were researching Sturbridge Village, we learned that there is a recent little drama going on where the Worcester school system has decided to boycott and no longer send the students there on field trips. <laughs> well, the students are like, boo, his. <laughs> no, <I> <laughs> Oh no, whatever will we do? The <laughs> Sorry. I had fun. I would have had fun as a kid seeing the lambs. I would have loved it. The reason they did this is because the president of Old Sturbridge Village is also creating a charter school in the area. A charter school that he boasted in a letter to the board of Old Sturbridge Village, will be a source of regular income and stability for the museum because they plan to integrate the museum into the curriculum in some heavy way. So 
a charter school gets public funds, and those funds end up going to the museum. And, you know, that's what was happening with the public school field trips, too. But it's arguable that there's a bit of a conflict of interest when the school is run by the president of the museum. It's very strange. You know, I mean, I just took uh, like the required ethics, like you have to just sort of take a required ethics training every year if you're like a an actively serving member of a city board and you have to take a conflict of interest training online. And like there is literally an example in the training that would forbid this. And in the approval process of this charter school, people people were bringing it up. They're like, this this program is not for padding the budget of other institutions owned by the people making the school. Uh, it's it's a more extensive topic than my research has. I'm not an authority on everything that's gone into this, but I'm clearly leaning on the side <laughs> of what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> It's really interesting, and we we stumbled upon this because I had said yesterday, after we made the notes for this episode, like, let's just each do 20 minutes of research before the episode, just like, for fun, doing a slightly deeper dive into, uh, like, I think I had said specifically, like, who's on the board? Because right. I'm curious, you know, like, who, who elects to be on the board of Sturbridge Village. So when I had searched for like board of directors Sturbridge Village, because this is relatively recent news, it was just the first thing that came up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> interesting. And this is a nonprofit, which is why we dropped the salary of the president a little bit ago, because it's all available online, as is required of nonprofits. You, do you want to say again what it is? Uh, about $260,000 a year. And then followed by whoever comes after him. Like a couple of vice presidents who make like 130 and 100. It's interesting. It's interesting to have this sort of top-down distribution of salaries, familiar in businesses, also existent in this recreation 19th century village. Yeah. It's sort of like if they were like, oh, and there goes our mayor and the fanciest duds of all. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Uh, I am glad that a lot of museums are working to unionize. So this is also excellent research for our, for what we're doing. Yeah. So okay. So would you call it a successful research expedition? Oh, I think it was hugely successful. I mean, I feel like I learned a lot of things practically just in terms of like new ways that we can dig a few levels deeper in terms of how we present the business structure of fictional organizations. And also just in terms of, I mean, I, I hate, it feels like using the word vibes is like so a little overplayed now, but it was really helpful. It was helpful to see people, you know, walking around uh, well, at one point, I, I didn't see it, but one of our group had said that, you know, as we were leaving, there was an employee or volunteer, who knows, who was leaving at the same time who, like, got to the parking lot and then just, like, ripped off the bonnet. No, I saw that. Uh, yeah. Saw, yeah, she and, absolutely, she just, like, threw it into the backseat with such disdain. And, um, at least that was that was the reading, right? So, you know, even that, it's good. It's just, it's all good research. And this is going to be a multi-part episode because we have another one coming. We have a, a list of places that we want to hit, as they say in the field trip lingo. <laughs> I think only one, we're, we're only... We're only promising a two-parter, right? Like, we don't know if it's going to be more than that. But at least for this episode, we have a planned part two. We're going to Six Flags. We're going to Six Flags. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. And we're not just going to Six Flags. I mean, because Jurassic Park is a central theme in the story that we're working on, 
we had already wanted to go to Six Flags because it seemed really important to go to a theme park and a theme park that was like a notch below Disney. Yeah. And there's a Six Flags not too far from here. I've I've never been to this one. I haven't been to a Six Flags since high school. And when I looked it up to see when it was open and when we could get tickets, they just opened up an animatronic dinosaur safari. And I right? lost my mind. It's like first the piggery, now oh this. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I thought the piggery was too much excitement for me to contain. Oh, my gosh. I Like, I think I screamed. <laughs> so I can't wait. So that's the next stop on our our learning journey of amusement parks and recreation historic sites. Another form of research that we have talked about really wanting to do is talking to people who have worked in amusement parks or recreation whatevers. So we wanted to put it out there. If you or somebody you know has spent some time in that kind of job, we would love to talk to them on a you know, on a private call or on the podcast. Yeah, so we we are just putting it out there. And if that is you or someone you know, you can send us an email at designdocpod at gmail.com. And we would be really, really excited to receive that. So that's our episode for today. We'll see you soon after uh, Six Flags. The Design Doc intro-outro theme was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. Design Doc is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. OneShot hosts other great shows like Mystery County Monster Hunters Club. Check out Mystery County Monster Hunters Club, an actual play podcast where the heroes are teens and the teens are a mess. Join a group of impulsive but well-meaning after-school monster hunters in the year 2006, doing their best to protect a weird little town in the 51st state of Superior. Through the game Monster of the Week, this cast of improvisers confronts cryptids, magic, and the biggest monster of all, feelings. Sorry, I was trying to play that straight, but remember like a number of episodes ago where I like hesitated and then you said capitalism, but it was feelings. Anyway. I think that would have been even better in this episode. I I know. In this episode, it would have been really perfect. Uh, Find Mystery County Monster Hunters Club at mysterycounty.com or your favorite podcast app. And finally, just a quick reminder that Design Doc is supported by the Turtle Bun Patreon. If you enjoy the show and you want to support it, yeah, fiscally, support it. God, I, yeah, well, it's like you're supporting by listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the part that I'm worst at, and I always try to play it straight, and then it just kind of falls apart. Uh, but we do have a Patreon. It's patreoncom turtlebun. And your support there means a ton. Thanks for listening, heroes. We'll see you soon.